Hello, everyone. My name is Sarah, and welcome to Lady Ripper, your newest true crime podcast. I'm super excited to finally be doing this. I have been obsessed with true crime my whole life, and bringing a podcast to life seemed like a natural progression in my obsession. I started off pretty young being interested in serial killers after being introduced to none other than Jack the Ripper in a novel, and from then on, my curiosity was piqued, and down the rabbit hole I went. I remember specifically digging into the Zodiac Killer and Ted Bundy. Fun fact, I grew up just a few miles away from one of the abduction sites of Ted Bundy's victims, Deborah Kent, and I went to college at the University of Utah, where he also attended law school. There's actually so much Ted Bundy history by where I live, I could probably make it a separate podcast. But anyway, my family thinks I'm a bit morbid because I love anything and everything about murders, mysterious disappearances, and serial killers. I hope all of you true crime fanatics can relate and get excited to go on this journey with me. Today I have with me good friend and fellow collaborator Ruben. Say hi Ruben. Hello everybody. He'll be helping add some commentary and insight on our episodes. For an added fun factor, Ruben won't know anything about the episode beforehand, and all of his reactions and commentary will be off the cuff. For today's episode, I'm going to try and keep it clean, but some of the things the perpetrators say are explicit, so there might be some swearing. I will probably make some mistakes, but hopefully we can look past those and enjoy the story I'm about to tell you. Today's story is going to take us back to September of 2006 in Pocatello, Idaho. If you aren't super familiar with where that is, it is in the southeast area of the state, nestled right in the western foothills of the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Or if you're coming from the Salt Lake City area in Utah, which is where I live, it is about two and a half hours away. I grew up going there to visit my cousins once a year, and the drive definitely seemed much longer than that. Have you ever been up there, Ruben? No, I wish. Or do you just go up to Idaho to play the lottery? Kind of. <laughs> Our story today is about a young and beautiful teenage girl named Cassie. I was surprised that I had never heard of this case before I started my research, but as I did more and more of a deep dive into it, I'm so glad I picked the case. This case is also known as the Scream Murder because the killers were inspired by the popular movie franchise Scream. Ruben, when you told your daughter you were going to be part of this podcast, what was the first YouTube video she showed you? Actually, the the one day planning how how they're gonna do it. That's wild. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Well. It was actually su- super crazy how many times this case seemed to keep popping up every day. Once I decided to research it, it was like once I decided to do this case as my first episode, it was like the case had actually picked me. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born on December 21st, 1989, which I find very haunting because she'd be the same age as me if she had not been killed. Cassie and her younger brother, Andrew, were raised by their grandparents, Paul and Josefina Cisneros. Most recently, Cassie and Andrew had moved back in with their mom, Anna, and things had been going well. I couldn't find anything where it said why they were raised by their grandparents or why they only recently had moved in with their mom, but it seemed as if they had a good relationship with everyone who lived in their family, and it was a happy household. Cassie also had a sister named Christy, who did not live at home because she was older. Cassie's brother said that Cassie was headstrong and was a role model, and that they often had the same interests and liked to hang out at the same places. Cassie was known for being artistic, intelligent, and hardworking. She had goals to attend college in the future. 
that September of 2006, Cassie was a junior at Pocatello High School. She was a beautiful young girl with long brunette hair and an infectious smile. I posted a couple of pictures of Cassie on our Instagram. Ruben, I also have a picture of Cassie for you right here. What do you think? Wow, she looked like a pretty cute, innocent girl. All right. Yeah, she is very cute. Very beautiful smile. Uh, Cassie had a boyfriend named Matt Beckham, who was also um, a 16 and a junior at Pocatello High School. They had been dating for about five months, but had known each other since junior high. On the weekend of September 22nd, 2006, Cassie was house-sitting for her aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank Contreras. To not feel so alone, she invited her boyfriend, Matt, over to watch some movies. At 6 p.m., he came over, and then soon after, two of their classmates came over, too. Matt had invited classmates Brian Lee Draper and Tori Michael Adamchek to tell, telling them that there was going to be a party. Cassie was upset that Matt had invited them over as she had only gotten permission to have Matt over, but she wanted to be a good sport, so she let them stay. But before we get too far into the story, I want to talk about Brian and Tori Adamchek's backgrounds. I feel like it's necessary to talk about them before putting this whole puzzle together. Brian Lee Draper was born on March 21st, 1990, and was adopted by Pam and Carrie Draper. He grew up in Utah and moved to Pocatello, Idaho when he was a bit older. According to an article written by A.D. Argyle titled The Loss of Cassie Stoddard, Draper had a stutter growing up which resulted in him being frequently bullied and could have been the catalyst to his dark thoughts. We'll see evidence of his stutter re-emerging in the future, videotapes and interrogation videos. We'll see the beginnings of his dark thoughts start to fully form and turn into actions when he was in the 8th grade, but I will talk about that later in the episode. Stay tuned. Tori Adamchek was born on June 14, 1990 in Pocatel, Idaho to parents Shannon and Sean Adamchek. According to Shannon in her book titled The Guilty Innocent, Tori was artistic and could build anything without using any blueprints or plans. But once he was introduced to a video camera, he became obsessed with making and watching movies, and his new passion was to become a film director. Shannon said that their house was loving and happy and that everything was stable and normal and that they had no idea that their lives would ever take the turn that it would. Tori and Brian bonded over their love of filmmaking and constantly had a camera at their side and documented their every move. They were obsessed with horror movies and wanted to film their very own horror movie. Little did anyone know that they wanted to make a live-action one. In the days leading up, to Cassie's murder, Tori and Brian had been making plans, all documented with their handheld camera. In fact, they had been making a murder list of people they wanted to kill, with Cassie's name being at the top. It was honestly very reminiscent of the two shooters at the Columbine High School. On September 21st at 8.36 p.m., Brian can be heard on camera saying... There should be no odd against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, 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 you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? 
They also taped themselves saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick with the plan, and she's perfect, so she's gonna die. I'm sorry, but that's horrifying. How dare they say that to her family, knowing full well that they might see this video one day. It makes me sick to think about the way they laughed while they plotted to kill Cassie. These two kids have no souls. They also said this. I was like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. Are you kidding me? The thought of killing turns you on? What do you think, Ruben? What are your thoughts on them saying all these things? They are sick guys. Very, very sick guys. I mean, everyone loves horror movies, but not turning into the real life. Yeah. I mean, that's unimaginable. Of course it's not. They just don't think about the consequences. No, not at all. They're completely blind about it. The master plan. Yeah. To make a, to make a murder list, to me, like, I, I'm just baffled, baffled by that. And to put an actual friend on that murder list. I mean, you can feel that annoyed with some friends, but not put into the murder list. Like, like not normal. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, it's absolutely like you said. It's not normal. There's nothing normal about this. <laughs> so after making their murder list, they go on to plot the best way to get Cassie and Matt alone so that they can kill them. This includes going to a pawn shop to buy four different knives for $45. They continue to brag on camera about how they'll become famous, like the serial killers Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, and the Hillside Strangler. More specifically, Brian says, we're going to go down in history. We're going to be just like Scream, except in real life terms. Tori responds, that sounds good, baby. You can hear and see and hear Brian stutter when you read the transcripts taken from the video recording, which I got from their court documents. You can also get all of these videos online. I got them off of YouTube, which Ruben says, that's where your daughter showed you this. Yeah, yeah exactly that one. Yes. I was like petrified when I, <laughs> I see all that so creepy and how old is your daughter 13 13 and yeah. she's and she's finding this online uh yeah that's been uh, very popular right now why why do you think this has been so popular i had never even heard of this case and i'm like yeah, super when, when you told me about a podcast and she's saying the same like oh that we're talking about the same person it was oh that's crazy yeah that is just so wild i mean these and these are just teenagers teenagers making this murder list to kill other teenagers i mean now i'm afraid because teenagers is more interesting in this kind of things i hope they don't turn into into the real life too yeah i mean and and these these teenagers they said they were inspired by the columbine killers i mean it just I, it just goes to show that teenagers will get inspired by other teenagers and things that they do. I mean, that's a scary thought. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be more careful with watching horror movies about serial killers. I know. It's scary that, you know, maybe my my obsession, but I, I mean, mine is totally innocent. I'm not plotting to go kill someone right now. Of course not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but so anyway we i got these videos off of youtube you can also go find them on youtube if you are interested um 
More videos uh, that you can find. They also say that they failed to murder someone at least eight to nine times because that person who's referred to as Jane Doe in the transcript haven't been home or their parents have shown up too soon to get the job done. But they are confident that this time they will be successful when it comes to Cassie. But let's go back to the night of uh, September 22nd, 2006. It's about 7 p.m. and Cassie and Matt have invited Brian Draper over to watch some movies. He invites Tori to come over with him. Cassie gives them a tour of the house first before they sit down to watch Kill Bill Volume 2. While they're touring the basement, Brian and Tori finalize their plan and leave the basement door unlocked so that they can sneak back into the house later that evening and complete their mission. Kill Cassie. 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all locked. Now we just got to wait. Around 10 p.m., Brian and Tori make, an, make up an excuse that they want to go see a movie at the movie theater. Rather than finish the movie they were currently watching and leave Cassie and Matt alone in the house. They go to their car where they don dark clothing, gloves, and masks and grab the knives that they had bought from the pawn shop. They go to the unlocked basement door and sneak inside and begin to make noise to lure Cassie and Matt downstairs, hoping that they would come down to investigate what was making all the racket. When nothing happens, Matt and Cassie do not come downstairs. They decide to cut the power, hoping that it would finally scare Cassie enough that she would come downstairs. Instead, Matt called his mom and asked if he could stay the night. But being a good mom, she said absolutely not. But she did offer to let Cassie stay the night at their place instead. Cassie declined, saying that she had promised to watch the house and the dogs for her aunt and uncle. So Matt left the house to go home. Finally, Cassie was left alone, a little scared, but determined to be a good house sitter and to watch over her aunt and uncle's dogs. She had no idea what was about to happen and the horror that was about to ensue. Frustrated that their plan was not working, Brian and Tori tiptoed up the stairs, and once they reached the landing, slammed the door shut behind them for dramatic effect and began their frenzied attack on Cassie. She was lying on the couch and was brutally stabbed approximately 30 times by a hunting knife and a dagger. Twelve of her wounds were potentially fatal, with the majority of them being direct stabs to her heart. She had no hope of survival. The last thing she saw was their ghastly white masks with dripping red paint looking like blood. I can't even imagine how scared she must have been. Shit, that's creepy. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just oh killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh fuck. That felt like it wasn't real. I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. Now, if that isn't a confession, I don't know what is. They just filmed themselves on camera directly after the murder, talking about the brutal murder murder they had just committed. These two kids are just monsters. And yes, I said kids. Remember, they are only 16 years old. But here they are out committing premeditated murder. I can't even begin to understand how messed up their psyche must be to be able to plan something like this, let alone act out a plan like this. Then they are almost giddy when they are done. They didn't even have a good reason to 
why they chose to kill Cassie to be the one who died. They literally just picked her and said, well, Cassie has to die. In Shannon Adamchek's book, The Guilty Innocent, she blames the whole murder on Brian and claims that it was his manipulative personality that put Tori in this situation. She refuses to acknowledge Tori's involvement whatsoever, even after faced with the cold, hard facts. In fact, if you want to be both annoyed and angry at the same time, I suggest you go read her book. But more about that later. I read her book and I have a lot of feelings about her opinion of what happened. After Brian and Tori murdered Cassie, they went to Black Rock Canyon and dug a hole to discard all of the potential evidence of the crime. They changed out of their bloody clothes, put the knives and homemade masks into the hole. They also put the now infamous and damning videotape into the hole. Then they dumped hydrogen peroxide on top and tried to light it on fire. It only partially burned. They made multiple attempts to completely burn it but finally gave up and just covered it with dirt and leaves and left, assuming that no one would ever find it. Brian and Tori went back to Tori's house that night. Matt and Anna, Cassie's mom, spent the weekend trying to get a hold of Cassie with no luck. No one was very worried, though, because they just assumed that she was busy, and it was pretty normal to go a couple of days without hearing from her. However, by the time Sunday rolled around, Cassie's mom started to get worried and called Matt to see if he had heard from her. When she found out that he had not, she decided to drive up to Whispering Cliffs and talk to her daughter in person. Before Anna got there, Cassie's aunt and uncle arrived home. Her cousin Kelsey was the first one to walk into the house. What she saw would change her life forever. She found Cassie lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Her body bent and cold, and a finger on her hand appeared appeared to be almost completely severed. Kelsey's scream brought Cassie's aunt and uncle running into the room. They immediately called 911, and the 911 call was devastating. On the call, the dispatcher asks Allison to check if Cassie has a pulse, and she says, She's cold. Someone is dead on our floor. Cassie's mom arrived at the house at the same time as the first responders and was distraught at the scene that was unfolding around her. Police immediately blocked off the crime scene and started the investigation that would turn out to be just as strange as fiction. When Cassie's mom got to the house, she immediately started screaming that it was Matt's fault, and she said, "'What did you do to my baby?' I can only imagine that since he was the last person to see her alive, it was only natural to assume that he had something to do with her murder. But as we know, he wasn't to blame. It was the bumbling idiots, Brian and Tori. Detectives Thomas and Gansky were tasked with investigating the crime. They began with interviewing Matt, Brian, and Tori since they were the last known people to have seen Cassie alive. Matt was the obvious suspect since he was her boyfriend. The detectives were initially very suspicious of him since he had a surprising lack of emotion considering his girlfriend had just been stabbed to death. But everything they could find was that he was a good guy who genuinely cared about Cassie and had no reason to want her dead. He even cooperated and took a polygraph, which he passed with flying colors. We all know that we people profit process grief in different ways, and there is no way to know how you would react if your girlfriend was brutally murdered, so we really can't judge him or throw blame based on the way he was acting. Matt was quickly cleared, and the police moved on to their other suspects, Tori and Brian. Both Tori and Brian were interviewed by the police in order to clear them. 
What no one was expected was that their stories would dig them deeper into a hole and cast a whole new shadow of suspicion over them. They initially stuck to the story that they had left to go to a movie after being at the house for a couple of hours and then went back to Tori's house to go to bed. What made their story fishy? Neither of them could describe the movie they supposedly went to see. No one at the movie theater ever saw them there either. When confronted with this information, they changed their story to admit that they, rather than going to the movie, they had actually been breaking into cars nearby and stealing money and loose change out of them. When that story didn't add up either, the police asked the two boys to come in and take a polygraph. At this point, it became every man for himself. Tori's parents got him a lawyer and refused to allow him to take a polygraph. Brian was more cooperative and met with the police for a third time, this time with his parents in their room. Brian decided to tell a third story to the police now. He was present for the murder, but he didn't want to be. It was all supposed to be a joke. They were supposed to scare Cassie, but Tori had pushed past him and stabbed her right before his eyes. He was afraid Tori would kill him. With a little bit of prodding, the detective got Brian to admit he actually did stab Cassie, maybe four times, but he didn't kill her. He claimed that Tori yelled at him, you need to stab her, you need to stab her. After his confession, he took the police to Black Rock Canyon, where the evidence was buried. The videotape was discovered and would ultimately prove to be both of their downfalls. Here I have a picture of the terrifying masks with the painted red blood and the videotape that was unburied, as well as the knives that were found buried in the hole. Oh, wow. That's a pretty bad quality Hollywood movie. <laughs> they forget all details and... What, what kind of stupid people pretend to destroy a videotape? It's like break it or something else, not like pretend to burn it. Yeah, well, they they made this video and then they halfway burned it and then buried it thinking that no one would ever see it again. But they didn't even do a completely good job of doing it. <laughs> of course not. And I mean, you can see in these pictures, the the masks aren't even halfway burned. But imagine saying that that's the last thing you see before you die how horrifying is that yeah i mean these are white masks and then it has red around the eyes with dripping red blood down the face i mean if that's the last thing you see that is a pretty horrible picture and then here's a picture and these are going to be posted on the instagram at lady ripper podcast um, so please go follow that. And then here's a picture of the dagger, which was used. Yeah, please check those photos. That's so disturbing. Oh my God. But, uh, he, he led the police right to where they buried it. Um, so they got all of the evidence. Um, and these pictures are just showing all of these as they're being unburied. Well, this is so wild. I love those kids are so so insane wow but during his interview he was sobbing he seemed riddled with grief but 
honestly, it could have all been an act for the police and his parents to garner sympathy. I'm going to let you decide. Tori, on the other hand, was standing firm that he had no hand in Cassie's murder. He had yet to admit that he was even there. The last day of Brian's confession and the discovery of the videotape finally gave the police the ammunition to arrest Tori. He finally had to confess that he was, in fact, at the scene of the murder. He also turns and places the blame on Brian and says he had nothing to do with stabbing her and they were only supposed to scare her. He had no idea that Brian was going to stab her. The police, having seen the videotape already, knew otherwise, and he was also charged with first-degree murder. Now, going back, remember where I mentioned the book that Shannon Adachek wrote? Well, she is straight-up delusional when she writes about Tori's supposed innocence. She goes beyond a mother's belief and support in their child. She has actually seen the videotape from their lawyers, and she says that Tori is acting for a movie, and that they were writing... That a movie that they were writing and that nothing in there that he says is actually factual. She can only see one side of Tori and that it is the pure, innocent child that she believes she raised, not the teenager that compares himself to serial killers and the Columbine killers. She directly blames Brian and his influence and love of horror films for turning Tori down a dark path. In her book, she also reveals that Brian was involved in a school shooting plot when he was in the eighth grade. Apparently, he and a couple of friends were planning to bring some guns to a school dance and kill a list of people, just like at Columbine. They had bragged to a few students who had told a guidance counselor who had then reported the plot to the school and a resource officer. Brian had been talked to, but no action was taken. Then a few weeks later, at that same school dance, Brian and his friends were seen walking around pretending to hold guns and shoot people. Once again, they were turned in, and this time Brian was suspended. His family moved to Idaho shortly after. To me, it's incredible how much she is showing is trying to pass the blame onto Brian in this book. I understood the desperation of trying to help her son, but the audacity to write a book about how your son is innocent after there is literally video evidence of them planning and confessing to the murder is absolutely ludicrous. She even tries to pass the blame onto Matt by saying that if he hadn't left Cassie alone in that night, she would have never been killed. And wait, just wait... She even blames Matt's mom for letting Cassie stay alone in a house where the power was out. She said that his mom should have known better than to leave a 16-year-old girl alone in a dark house. Well, maybe she should have known that her son was busy buying knives and plotting to murder people at the school. The audacity of that woman. I wonder if Tori just wishes that she would stop talking about him or if he even cares. I don't know. Brian and Tori were tried in court separately as adults, and each were found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Each received life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for the first-degree murder charge and 30 years to life for conspiracy to commit murder on August 21, 2007. But before Brian was sentenced, the judge overseeing his trial said, quote, If you were released, you would kill again. I'm convinced of that beyond a reasonable doubt. Both Brian and Tori are serving their sentences in Idaho State Correctional Institute. Since being sentenced, Brian and Tori have filed appeals to get charges dismissed or reduced, which have been largely unsuccessful. 
In 2012, the United States Supreme Court ruled that mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juvenile offenders, even in cases of murder, ruling that the age of the convict had to be considered. In 2016, the Supreme Court ordered that this ruling be charged retroactively and that these two cases were re-examined, the belief being that every child had the capability to be reformed. As of right now, there has been no change in their sentencing or charges despite exhaustive appeals. It has been 16 years since Cassie's tragic murder. It has not been easy. Her brother Andrew said it took months for him to return back to school, even though his sister's killers were arrested just five days after her murder. Her aunt and uncle were unable to sell the murder house, and each fell into a dark depression and alcoholism. Cassie's cousin Kelsey, the one who found her, attempted suicide because she was unable to get the gruesome scene out of her head. Andrew told the Idaho State Journal, Every other month, we have to go back in and sit in the courtroom. It's like a reoccurring nightmare. Hopefully for Cassie's family and friends, they will see an end to this nightmare and not have to deal with a continuous stream of trials and appeals and be able to properly grieve Cassie. No matter what happens, though, Cassie's grandmother said to KPVI News, remaining strong as a family is the only choice there is. Now, Ruben, since you've heard the story in full, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm speechless. It's like, how can you destroy the, it's just not one life, it's the whole family life. Right. They, they took one girl's life just for fun, just because they wanted to make a horror movie. And... Well, probably they, that was just out of control, you know. They see that situation and they just like, come on, let's do it, let's do it. We're here, let's do it. Oh, man. <laughs> Ooh, that's a creepy story. <laughs> it is a very creepy story. And it's it's a sad story, too, of teenagers who get caught up in the motion of excitement and they they're playing off each other and they and then they can't handle the consequences of their actions and there's to destroy their lives and but what what you really think about like the supreme court say so you kill once probably you will kill again and again and again yeah, that is actually a really interesting um, thought because I I, fe- I feel like even if as a child you you kill again, you have the potential to kill again. And um, in the next couple episodes, we're going to be talking about the serial killer Mary Bell, which you had no Ooh. idea. <laughs> okay. Um, he actually really had no idea, you guys. Um, she is an 11-year-old serial killer. Um, and she was released at the age of 18 and she is now living in society under a different name, but okay, that's, that's what I mean. Yes. And I don't know how you feel about that. If these two, um, were to be released, would you feel comfortable with them uh, no. being out in society? <laughs> I sh- you will watch your back all the time. I sure would not feel comfortable with them being released. And 
there's actually a documentary um, about kids who were um, sentenced life without parole. And I am not remembering what the name of that documentary is called as of this moment. But Brian and Adam, and I'm not Adam, I'm sorry. I just forgot his name. (laughs) (laughs) Brian and Tori. Tori, oh my God. Brian and Tori were featured in this documentary. And it's very interesting to see the difference in the two. Brian is actually very contrite and he's very apologetic. And he realizes that he's made a big mistake. And he actually has on his wall, uh, up a note saying rest in peace Cassie I'm so sorry um something along those lines and he talks about the the process that he's been through of you know accepting what he's done and realizing that he has actually done something wrong and he's working with other inmates in accepting of his crime now the opposite side of that um, is Tori and his parents are in that and along with his parents is his mom who cannot accept the fact that he did something wrong and he just yeah. keeps saying I'm innocent I didn't do anything wrong I hung out with the wrong person and it is just a very stark contrast to Brian who's actually appearing to have learned something about Wait, what he's what done is, is just the fact about that I can convince everyone to. Uh, I'm. I'm feel so so sorry to get out more early. See, and it's it's not the thing that he's trying to convince people that he feels sorry to get out early. He it doesn't seem like he's doing that to me. It feels like he's genuinely trying to feel to in order to feel better about himself as a human to accept his sentence that he's trying to atone for i don't want to say atone for his sins because it sounds very religious but he's trying to um accept what he's done to make his sentence more meaningful if that makes sense well yeah it makes sense but it's it's been a long 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 time to think about what they did yeah and the whole documentary is actually about Um, You know, should these people be let out sooner because they were uh, tried as uh, because they were under 18. And, um, you know, I still don't think that even if because he does recognize that he did something bad, I still don't think he should be let out. I mean, you look at his past history where they talk about how he planned a school shooting. Absolutely not. He should not be let out. (laughs) You know, he clearly has some mental and emotional problems and he Uh, killed someone. I hope they don't feel that. Okay, I need to complete my killing list. Yeah. After all those years. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that he should be let out at all but i do think there is something to be said for him trying to make something out of his his I mean, life in prison okay this is probably my best commentary and i didn't pretend get like a eye for an eye okay but i don't think they will be able to be in society anymore no, no. one will feel feel free and secure 
That's insane. No, absolutely not. And I and I just and I and I think that it's it's kind of a hard a hard thing and it's a case by case thing and I think that's what the Supreme Court is asking everyone to do mm-hmm. when they're evaluating these cases on these kids is to do a case by case evaluation on if certain offenders can be rehabilitated. So it's like, uh, okay, you're not a kid anymore. Okay, we will process you like uh, an adult. We will see what happened. I can, I can believe that. Yeah, and I, yeah. but I don't think that these two uh, deserve to be or are should be let out <laughs> at all. <laughs> but you know what? Let me know what you think. Maybe... Someone has an opinion that I don't have, and you can convince me otherwise. Let me know. Um, I am open to other thoughts. You know. Yeah, please let your comments in. This is a very interesting story. Come on, we need to hear what you think. Yeah, you know, I I actually was not planning on talking about this documentary, which is why I'm unprepared to tell you the title of it. Um, just because I kind of watched it on a late night after work. Um, I found it on accident and I was, like I said, it was one of those things where this uh, case just kind of popped up into my life in lots of different ways. And I was researching another case and it showed up. So I wasn't planning on including it in this podcast today, but I'm glad that it came up in our conversation. Oh, yeah, um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, do you have any other thoughts, Ruben? Anything else you want to talk about with this case? Nah, shit, this is so creepy. And, uh, I mean, I'm very involved now. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I didn't expect this. It was like, oh, oh my God. No, no, no. That's a wild. Yeah, it's it's a crazy it's a crazy case and it's it's kind of crazy and one of the reasons I picked it was it's that it's kind of close to home, um, and that it's in Idaho and that we live here in Utah in Salt Lake. Um, okay, don't let the people think they're like this kind of big ranch. They're so creepy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is not a, a huge city, but okay, we're normal people here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed uh, our telling of Cassie Jo Stoddart or the Scream Murder. Like I said, we'll be posting pictures of Cassie. We have pictures of Tori and Brian's mugshots. Um, we'll post that on our Instagram and our Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram at Lady Ripper Podcast. That's L A D Y R I P P E R Podcast. Or at my Twitter at Lady Ripper Pod. Please follow me wherever you listen to your podcast and leave me a five star review. Drop me a comment and let me know what you think or what case you would like to hear next. Thanks. Bye. See you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>